morning everyone on this crisp autumn morning. We've gathered once again to sit together and support each other in our practice. The title of this talk today is called um, Coming Home. And in a sense the whole point of Zen practice is to come home. And um, instead of really being at home in the moment, in the context of our life. Um, as it says in um, Hakuin Zenji's Song of Sazen, we wander through the six worlds. We're not at home. We wander through all these sort of egoistic pathways, searching somewhere else for something else, right, when it's been at home here all the time. So Zen practice is always a sense of um, um, coming home to what is, what always was. And people often use that term. I, I remember I used that term when I first started um, Zen practice um, in a community in Hawaii. And there's this sense, ah, yes, I've, I've come home. This, is, this seems right. Uh -huh. And uh, so what I'd like to do is I, I want to take you on a little bit of a journey before we come home again. Um, as I was mentioning um, last Tuesday night, I recently discovered um, a, an author, a, a novelist called Neil Gunn, um, who is not very well known. I didn't know of him. Um, he's not mentioned in um, R.H. Blythe's famous book called Zen in English Literature and Oriental Classics. And Robert Aitken, my teacher, who was an um, English literature scholar um, and also had Scottish background. I never heard him talk about, about Neil Gunn, so it was quite an exciting <laughs> discovery. And uh, uh, I was actually recommended to read one of his books by Diana, who read a review in one of the um, Australian papers. So I started reading it, and as I went into it, um, I had no idea of the background of this writer um, but what he was writing really resonated with me the, the descriptions of the um, Scottish landscape and the people and the community and so on and uh, it was only after I read the book that I then explored who Neil Gunn was and um, he was referred to as the Zen master of the Highlands and there was a whole book written about him called um, The Celebration of Light, which was um, a book about how, how much his uh, writing, just from a very um, uh, intuitive um, place, uh, so much resembled Zen Buddhism. And he states in his autobiography that um, in his midlife, he came across uh, Eugene Herigl's book, Zen and the Art of Archery, and, um, and just felt like that explained and resonated with his whole experience of life. It's not as though reading that book, he be, then became a, a Zen person. It's more like, oh yeah, that, that resonates with what I understand already. And um, he talked about, these aren't the terms we would use, but he talked about um, that there is a, a second self. And what he meant by that is that beyond this conceptual way, this sort of wandering, dreamy, disembodied way of, of looking at life, 
there is a second self that actually can just see nature in particularly and see the moment just as it is, not looking at it through a conceptual lens. And that when we came came back to that, it, it was the, he referred to it as the atom of delight, like the, the moment of delight to just cut through all of that thinking into the moment. And so a lot of his books are about um, describing um, Scottish communal life after the clearances and, um, and the, the day-to-day family interactions, which was really heartwarming. And um, he makes reference to... Um, I won't go into the background of it, but it's based on a, a Gaelic story um, about the Salmon of Wisdom. And he says, Knowledge is high in the head, but the salmon of wisdom swims deep. Mm-hmm. And that really resonates with our then experience, not disembodied, conceptual, up here somewhere. One of his books is called The Highland River, which is um, largely autobiographical. And he talks about the salmon who live at sea, and then they intuitively find their way back up the river to the source of the river where they were born, do you know, where they were spawned. So they, they, there's a coming home, an intuitive coming home. And the Highland River is metaphorically the, the river of life. And the author, um, after he, um, in middle life, after he's grown up as a boy and becomes a scientist, comes back and, and follows the river back up to the source like the, the salmon do. And when he gets to the source of the river, he's kind of um, totally amused because the source of the river is a bog. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but he's quite happy with it being a bog. You know, um, He's at home in the muddy water, mm-hmm. coming back to that. And um, so when it comes to our own Zen practice, when I first started reading about reading Zen books in my early 20s and was taken away by them. But it was, it's in, in that sense back then, it was actually a very romanticised view of what Zen was because I was talking, I was reading about basho and descriptions of Japanese temples and cherry blossoms. We read books on Chinese Zen and about Chinese landscapes. And I started to get the idea that that the Tao had a certain, only lived over there in China or Japan somewhere. Slowly it dawned on me that maybe it might be in Australia as well. That might be the sound of kookaburras and eucalyptus trees. Um, But we can see that um, in all different cultures, whether it's Japanese, Vietnamese, Chinese, um, Scottish Highlands, is that human beings have found a way a way back, a way back to home, and and home paradoxically is living in this ephemeral momentariness of what is. You can't pin it down, mm-hmm. and yet at the same time, it needs to have a sense of community and a sense of family and a sense of place. You know, for it to be grounded. So it's both of those things at the same time. If we don't have both, it's kind of like it's not, there's something that's not real about it. 
in Australian culture, Australian, sorry, in Australian um, Aboriginal culture, I was speaking about with Jan recently at session, there's a word called dadiri, and dadiri translates as inner deep listening, quiet, still awareness. And it's been part of Aboriginal culture for, you know, eons. But they also had a way, this was their way, um, this was their equivalent of Zen practice, where you sat quietly and you weren't trying to achieve anything and you just became um, immersed in your environment, you know, in the billabongs and the kookaburras and the cockatoos, you know, and the budgerigars. Uh-huh and the grass, and you would focus on, you would spend time not doing things and caught up in busyness, but you would deliberately, as an individual, as a community, spend time to just look at, say, an ant, you know, and just appreciate what it is to be an ant, you know, and what it's like to be an ant in the context of this whole environment. So all cultures have had their ways of coming home and our, our challenge is, is to come home mm-hmm. um, in an embodied kind of way the word um, satori in Zen is a word that probably as it's translated into English and it's written about takes on a meaning which is um, somewhat rather exotic or rather worldly. But when you when you look into what the experience of Satori is, or you've had a glimmer of that experience, it's simply it's not like an orgasm in the head. It's it's an, it's an experience of coming home. And it's an experience of coming back to just this, what, whatever that just this might be for you, right, in that moment. Um, and it's usually thought of as a sudden experience, and we can have sudden experiences of, of real vivid clarity where everything drops away and there's just this, just the suchness of life without any conceptual projection onto it all. That there are those little moments of clarity that occur, but it's very important to recognise in Zen practice that, that, that this also happens gradually and it needs to be nurtured gradually as well. Um, and then our life becomes more like that. Um, it's not like it's just a, some momentary glimpse and that's all that occurred, um, but our life becomes one of being grounded in, the, in this momentariness of life. And as we emphasise here, you know, over and over again, one of our, or two of our readings really focus on this, the whole coming home experience is one of being disembodied to embodied. So coming home, first and foremost, is to be embodied in this. Mm-hmm. But if it's to be a real indigenous Zen and not a fantasised one that lives in Japan or China or India or Scotland or somewhere, but it's actually here in North Sydney, mm-hmm. 
Sydney, Australia. Mm -hmm. um, it's not only just embodied in this, uh -huh, but it's also embodied in um, a sense of friendship, you know, um, really valuing the friendships that we have, the relationships we have, the family that we have, the community that we have, the landscape that we have. And it also includes really embodying and recognising um, our ancestry. Right? So in, in, we don't do it so much here, but it, say in the Diamond Sangha and other um, uh, uh, Western um, or Japanese uh, Zen communities, they recite um, the names of all the significant Zen ancestors going back to the Buddha. And that's important. We don't, we, we don't so much emphasise that here. Um, but recognising ancestry is important in terms of recognising how you got here. So alongside of our, our Zen ancestors who we can appreciate, it's also important if we're going to experience our own indigenous Zen, that we, we recognise where we came from our own biological inheritance, wherever that may be. Scottish, English, Asian, Vietnamese, Indian. Um, because that's also what makes us who we are. And we can sometimes draw, um, draw inspiration on those figures. Coming back into Scottish background, I've got Scottish background through my grandmother. And in looking a little bit more at my um, her um, side of the family. Um, I found it really inspiring to find um, that her um, her uncle and two of her cousins were um, um, Presbyterian um, missionaries in Korea for about 50 years, um, just doing this very altruistic work. First him as a missionary and then his two daughters as a doctor and a matron of a hospital. and. Um, doing amazing work reducing the level of leprosy down to almost nil um, in the area in which they worked. And when you, when you look into those stories, you know, you find a, an inspiration, an aspiration that goes beyond your own egocentricity. But we could all probably find them in some way or another, an inspiration for that. They not just come from, from traditional Zen culture, but they really come from how we make Zen culture our own within the context of our own, own life here. Mm -hmm. um, Gary Snyder, um, who you may know, was, was um, recognised as one of the beat poets in San Francisco in the 1950s and 60s um, and a long-term Zen practitioner. And I knew him through um, Robert Aitken. He used to be a student of Robert Aitken. And he came to Australia once. And, um, and he was particularly interested in um, Aboriginal Indigenous culture. And he spent a lot of the time while he was here out in the outback. And he came back and he stayed with us for a few days and gave a talk on his experience. And as a poet, he was emphasising this, this same importance that Zen is a kind of, and Buddhism is this kind of very, in a sense, um, ephemeral kind
kind of spirituality that embraces momentariness, you know, and recognizes the vast, infinite, interconnected nature of everything. Um, but it doesn't really mean anything until it's grounded in the experience where you live, unless it's grounded in the, the landscape where you live, and it's, it's grounded in the community in which you live. And he was encouraging us to use um, Australian Aboriginal culture as a, as, a, as a role model for how we can actually live here ourselves. So it's very important we do it. And it's very important that apart from our formal practice here, that we, um, we come home and we embody our own existence in, in the natural landscape around us. And uh, it's apart from spending a lot of time inside today, um, that we, uh, we also spend a lot of um, Dadiri-type time in a deep listening, quiet, still awareness um, in the natural environment around us.